Welcome, everyone, to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips, too. So let's get the show started. Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. Today we have an amazing show breaking down every single place that you would love to visit for farmers markets. And then we're going to bring and introduce you to Chef Dennis Littley, who's going to tell you all about his blog and his food adventures with us on Food Farms and Chefs. We have a special tutorial for you for this Labor Day weekend celebration. I know it's Tuesday after Labor Day, but you obviously all want to hear lots and lots of what there is related to this holiday. So we have our very own chef, Gene Blum, who is going to discuss Labor Day, discuss farmers um, with all of you. And Gene Blum, thank you for joining us again and giving us this wonderful tutorial. Well, thank you, Amaris. Happy Labor Day or post-Labor Day, everyone. I hope everyone's barbecues and celebrations were wonderful. And, you know, let us not forget that it really is a celebration of the American labor force. This holiday is so instrumental in celebrating not only the unions, but, you know, the labor force in general. And what more important of a labor force is there than the American farmer, farmers in general? You know, in 1935, there were 7 million farms in America. In 2021, that number is 2 million, just over 2 million. You know, 2 million, 10,000, somewhere around there. And that's down from 2 million, 200,000 in 2007 it's decreasing people don't want to be you know putting those hours the costs everything that goes with it the hard work i mean and hats off to farmers because without them as i always say and i'm sure you've heard me say before without farmers we would all be hungry naked and sober and that is just not a good image in any look <laughs> You got to be drunk to see me naked. So, you know, it's just think about that for a bit. But what we owe the American farmers. So on this Labor Day, I'm going to do a shout out to all the farmers out there who are busting their butt to make sure that we, the consumers, have everything we need. And then I'm going to go out and give a shout out to the hospitality workers, which is the number one industry in our country. I saw a number yesterday that was staggering to me that the Pennsylvania Restaurant Lodging Association is saying that there are about 100,000 job shortages in the hospitality industry in the state of Pennsylvania alone. Think about that for a minute. 100,000 less people working than we need to maintain restaurants. So when you go into the restaurant, if service is not 100%, if something seems a little off, Please be friendly to the staff. Please be nice to the staff because they showed up. They were there. Don't forget that what they're doing is essential to our enjoyment. But not what I came here to talk about. 
wanted to do a shout out for farmers, but I wanted to talk about something that's near and dear to farmers' hearts, near and dear to me, near and dear to many consumers, and that is farmers' markets or public markets. Farmers' markets are, you know, or public markets are the key to so many cities, and they're not just in one part of the country. Charleston has an amazing public market, very historic. Austin has a great public market, very historic. But I'm going to give you my rundown of the top 10 public markets in America. And by the way, you can accuse me of being a homer at the end of this and being a homeboy, but I'm not. I took some of this list from USA Today, some of it from Travel Magazine, but the number one is you unanimously agreed upon by all them happens to be here locally in Philadelphia. The rest I kind of put here or there, and I rank them according to different things. And many of them I rank by my visits to them and things I've learned. So I'm going to start off with a great, really cool place on the mar on the water in San Francisco, which is the ferry building, the ferry building marketplace. So Ferry Building Marketplace is managed by a great nonprofit called Foodwise. They are open three days a week. They are Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Love that they're right on the waterfront. If you there, you get a backdrop of the bay right there. But like many farmers markets, what makes or what made the Ferry Building so cool is that it was a transportation hub. Not only was it a train station and a train hub, but it was also a ferry boat station. So things coming in, people coming in, everything was coming through that area. And it became kind of the, wow, this makes sense. Let's open up a market here. How convenient it is. You know, in 1898, it was a train hub. It opened up and became a ferry station. It did not become a public market until 2003. So in the realm of public markets, the ferry building marketplace is relatively young because we're going to talk about some that are very, very different, um, very much older, you know, have been around for hundreds of years. I'm going to go with that as my number 10, kind of a must-see place in California. There's a lot of must-see places in San Francisco, uh, but the Ferry Building Marketplace is one that I think everybody should go to. Next on my list comes a little bit closer to the East Coast. I come to the Finley, Ohio market. It's in Cincinnati. It is Ohio's oldest continuous operating market. It was uh, donated, built on land, donated by uh, James and, and Jane Finlay. Um, it was built in 1852, but it did not open until 1855 because of contract negotiations with the builders and different payment issues and things like that. So it's delayed. What's really cool about this market, if you are an architectural fan, you need to go to this market and see it is built originally with cast iron and wrought iron. It is a very cool architectural open air kind of market that has since been, you know, renovated and built a little differently. A couple other things I love about this market is they did build this giant 
uh, masonry structure added to it, you know, much later in time um, in 1902. But they salvaged an old bell tower from the city. And every day when the market opens, they open with ringing that bell to let everybody know that they're open. Traditions like that just go hand in hand with great food, great local vendors. And that marketplace there uh, in Cincinnati is filled with local farmers, local products. And that's what it's all about. Going to go to another old world market in some ways. Um, it was in the historic third ward of Milwaukee, and that is the Milwaukee Public Market. What's really cool about this market is it's two floors. It's a relatively new market as well. It really was opened up in 2005. They actually have a streetcar line that runs to the market called the Hop Streetcar Line. It'll take you right there. <clears throat> but the market being two floors, the first floor is all the vendors and everything going on. And obviously Milwaukee, you know, we're going to think of beer, but you also have to think of meats and immigrant products and, you know, just great local products from, you know, all over the world because Milwaukee is a true melting point for immigrants. But the second floor is just a giant seating area. And then they also have this really state-of-the-art teaching area where you can take different classes and things like that. So the Milwaukee Farmers, the Milwaukee Public Market is kind of right there on my, you know, must-see places to go if you're in that area. Is that kind of like Reading Terminal Market where, you know, they do hold events or whatever, but, you know, you're saying that the second floor is seating. So I wonder, is that like an event space in, on top of like a learning space, you know, kind of situation? Is that, you know, sadly, these public markets cannot survive just on the rent of the farmers alone or the small vendors alone. So the event revenue in these public markets has become crucial and they have become a place to go and host giant events and be seen and just have fun. I bet that's fun. <laughs> Coming back a little bit closer to the East coast, my third favorite market in America, I have it number seven, but I'm going to go with, you know, a combination of, Everybody's saying different things. It's my third favorite market in America is the Lancaster Central Market in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, kind of right in between uh, Intercourse, Blue Ball, Burden Hand, right in that area, right in the Amish area, right in the central Lancaster. It is open um, 6 a.m. to 3, Tuesdays, Fridays, Sundays. It was opened um, in 1889. It became part of the Central Market Trust. But it was a donation of land from you know generous local people, uh, the Hamilton family, Andrew and Ann Hamilton, that really made the Lancaster Farmers Market so key. What I like about that is it's still so much of the Amish tradition. When it originally founded, when it originally opened, it was mark you know market. Uh, local farmers, the Amish farmers and the Mennonite farmers. And if you're not familiar, familiar with the Amish and the Mennonite, they are very different. And, you know, they have beliefs where 
Some of them don't have electricity. There's no power machinery. They still use horse and buggies. There's a little bit of a difference between the Amish and the Mennonites, um, you know, in, in how strict they are. But their culture is very different. But their foods are amazing. So, you know, going to the Lancaster Central Market is a fabulous thing. And I will tell you, one of the great things I ever saw happened right outside the, the Central Market in Lancaster. I'm a football fan. Those people who know me know that I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan. And outside the market, there's lots of horse and buggies because they don't use cars. And when I saw a horse and buggy that had a Philadelphia Eagles uh, bumper sticker on it, I thought it was I've ever saw. I mean, just how cool that was. I don't know how they follow the Eagles, but uh, so I guess through the paper or whatever, but uh, that's where it's at. That, that takes tailgating to a whole different level. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. So let's go back up to the West Coast. Um, a cool little market. Not a big market by any means, but it's a very cool market and it's historic kind of little things that go with it. And that's what's called um, the LA, the Los Angeles Original Farmers Market. Um, so there were two individuals, Arthur um, Arthur Fremont and Gilmore, who got together and they bought some properties out in California that became known as the Market in the Grove. Um, they later became partners and shared the two and, and really extended that property a lot, um, the Market in the Grove. Um, and it became just an open-air kind of flea market, public market, local farmers to bring the produce and of course we're in california so great local produce great little things like that you know but the gilmore family very interesting family that really took ownership of the property in 1905 when they were drilling for water on that property they struck oil so it's not you know you can see oil wells in the area which is kind of cool um but you know one of the younger gilmores when he got um took over the ownership of the market and stuff like that, brought all kinds of very cool things to the market into the area. Midget car racing was one of them. He was panel in um, bringing a uh, pro football team to Los Angeles as well, not to the market area, but to that. And he was also instrumental in bringing a baseball team or purchasing a baseball team that was once owned by Bing Crosby. So it's very, very, very cool. But in 1952, Television City, which, as we know, the you know big studios and stuff like that, but we're producing television, opened next door, and it became a you know hub for those people working long days in television to do their shopping, get their produce, get their local goods, get their meats, cheeses, everything like that, you know, right from work, and also for lunch. So it became a popular place. Um, in the 1970s, there was a restaurant operating there called uh, the Country Kitchen. And the Country Kitchen also employed a lot of actors and people like that, you know, helping out when he needed to make extra money. And it was not uncommon in, you know, the early 70s to see Mickey Rooney working behind the counters at the Country <laughs> Kitchen. So kind of cool, you know, little uh, market and that and you know, in a great area and just with this really neat mix. If you're going to go to the L.A. Original Farmer's Market, 
I suggest you do a little bit of history research about it. It'll make your trip so much better. And that's all about I'm going to say about L.A. because I'm not really that big of a fan. But, you know, love California. Sorry, L.A., you know, but not my thing. Let's come back to the central part of America where you would think would be huge for markets. And, and you know, they have such a great history. But Chicago. So Chicago, there's several markets in Chicago that I think are noteworthy. But the one I'm going to single out as kind of my top five you know, markets is going to be the Chicago French market. It opened up in 2009. Um, a family got together and decided they wanted to help, you know, local farmers and local businessmen and local entrepreneurs and local businesswomen to, you know, sell their wares. And they opened up kind of a, a 30 plus stall food hall. And it you know, became the original Chicago food hall. Um, just a really cool feel. It's small, but you know you will not leave disappointed if you go to the Chicago French market. You'll find something there for yourself. You'll find something to take back with you. You'll find gifts to send to people. Very cool local products. Just a, a great little market in Chicago and a, and a city that has many great markets and a great history for you know, meat and, and shipping of foods and a great food history. I think if uh, I didn't live in Philadelphia as a food city, I would probably want to be in Chicago. But, you know, that's just my opinion. Number four on my list is a market that only sells New England wares and things from New England. And that is the Boston public market. Again, it's a small market. You know, 30, 35, you know, uh, artisan producers up there that sell only food produced in New England. Um, it is right near Haymarket. Um, if you are doing a kind of a New York or a Boston, sorry, a Boston uh, history tour, you know, Haymarket is a very cool place to, to go. There's a lot of history around there. You're pretty close to Cheers. You can go stop in, have a beer. Uh, say hello to Carla, you know, do that whole world there. But the Boston public market is um, just unique um, food producers from the New England area. Not You won't find anything imported from overseas. You're not going to find things from the Midwest, from California, from Philadelphia, any place like that. It's all local stuff. And again, like many public markets, they have become nonprofits. They have become uh, run by charitable organizations or by, you know, city charters. This one happens to be the Boston Public Market Association, a kind of very cool, you know, group. So one of the great um, cities in America that I think that gets a bad rap, Cleveland, I think gets the worst rap, but, you know, it gets a bad rap. And I think really has a, a great feel to it, great food scene, great barbecue bourbon scene is Detroit. And in Detroit, we have the Eastern Market. So the Eastern Market is open now. Last I looked, last time I was there, it was Tuesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. But Tuesdays and Saturdays were the big food days. Sunday, the entire market flips to become like, 
jewelers and handcrafters and local artisans and things like that. The other two days, it's all kinds of food and things like that going on. Um, it is a 19th century open air market or, you know, closed in now, but was built in the 19th century as open air. But what is so cool about the Eastern market is right next to it is a place called Burt's Warehouse. And Burt's Warehouse has amazing live jazz and Motown every night of the week. Just great music, big names, little names, just great music at Burt's Warehouse. And it's right next to the Eastern Market. So, hey, plan a day, spend it at the Eastern Market, then go to Burt's Warehouse, take in some great music, some libations, have a wonderful evening. If you've never been to Detroit, give it a shot. The old world Detroit, the public parks, the old mansions, but the barbecue scene is amazing as well. Just food scene, great place to go. Motor City is a cool place. You had me at uh, food, uh, libations, and then music. (laughs) I mean, you know, hey, that whole part of the country with Motown and live jazz. I mean, you know, Lincoln Park area of Chicago some of the best jazz you're ever going to get lots of little cafes and bars to go to so you know chicago is another great city like that and in my opinion chicago has what is the best burger in america uh if you go to kuma burger it's a burger place there heavy metal theme um all heavy metal but the two things i love about um uh the food at kuma burger i mean the atmosphere is great but you go in, the burgers are hand-formed, they're big, they're cooked perfect. Whoever cooks their burgers, hats off to them. And I'm talking Kuma Burger, the restaurant. They have some like little takeout places and all, too. Go to the restaurant, Kuma Burger. But they also have Maker's Mark on draft when I was there. <laughs> I, I mean, if they would have given me a cot, I would have moved in. And again, you would never know me because I wouldn't be on the show today. I would still be a Kuma Burger. But leads us to my number two and I have mixed emotions about this. It rightfully is the number two. They like to think of themselves as the number one. I don't I don't see it, but they do a great job and that is Pike's Place Market in Seattle. This is the market that everyone knows about because they're very famous for um, for a long time there was a bit or there was a management video series called fish that was kind of filmed and based on the fish market in pike's place where you know they throw fish back and forth among each other you know big whole fish if you ask for you know a salmon they'll throw this giant salmon to another guy down the line or wrap it for you or whatever and he catches it out of midair and they'll throw him to the guests and it, it is i have to say entertaining going to pike's place at lunchtime is an entertaining and wonderful experience not to be missed. If you're a foodie, going to Pike's Place Market is something you need to do. Um, It's really unique. Uh, It was founded in 1907, so it's old world. If you know me, I'm an old head. Um, If you can't tell by all the gray hair. You know, I like things that have some age to them, have some patina to them, have some attitude that comes with that. Pike's Place is that. They firmly believe they're the best in America. I'm sorry, Seattle, you're not. 
Okay, which leads me to my number one choice for markets in America. And again, I'm going to emphasize with the fact that this is not just my opinion. This is USA Today 2022. This is Fulmer's. This is many travel guides. Reading Terminal Market, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 78,000 square feet of fun food festivities. And I cannot say enough about Reading Terminal Market. Not only the vendors, let's go back to the original Bassett's ice cream. I mean, it, the market opened in 1893. Bassett's was there. When it opened originally, it was 800 stalls in the original market. A little different today. There's still you know, many, many, many stalls. There's not 800. And it opened in this really cool city grid planning kind of thing with you know 12 aisles and four avenues so that it was very easy to have people go up and down aisles with carts and pack stuff up to ship to Atlantic City, to New York City, to the suburbs. Reading Terminal Market is the epitome of farmer's markets. It is the best. If you look at what they originally did, they supported local farmers. You can get produce. Um, if you lived out in the country or out in the suburbs, you can order stuff at Reading Terminal and have it delivered to the train station by your house. And the Reading Railroad at each stop would get out. They would put the bags down for the necessary people or the boxes or crates. They would leave them there and you would pick them up at that train station. I don't think that would be so successful today. If you weren't there when the train pulled up, I doubt your stuff was going to be there 10 minutes. But, you know, what a cool concept. They had what they called market boys, or what boys they, they called them, but market boys who would run around the city and deliver produce to local, local people, things like that. So Reading Terminal Market is a cool thing. During the war, they managed to get through, even through rationing, by helping other local businesses and by helping the military, by feeding some of the war effort and doing things like that. So, you know, there's a great thing today. Reading Terminal Market is as robust and an important uh, part of the city as anything. The Reading Terminal Market Catering Company, uh, managed by Sarah Zahn and All About Events, an amazing catering venue. It's even growing larger now because they're taking access to a covered area on Filbert Street. Um, and I mentioned Filbert Street because my great trivia question is, what is the name of the bronze pig that is in Reading Terminal Market in the center food court area? His name is Filbert, um, and Filbert Street is, is right there. But Reading Terminal Market, they have great catering events there. You can do catering events for several thousand people. It's connected to the Philadelphia Convention Center. What made the Philadelphia the Reading Terminal Market so key is that both the east-west and the north-south train lines met there. But even more important on this Labor Day, what makes Reading Terminal Market stand out as a truly unique place? When the market opened, as a well, before the market officially opened as a public market, Market Street in Philadelphia, which runs down in front of the market, was kind of the hub for open-air markets. But they had to shut it down because of unsanitary conditions, 
you know, rodent issues, things like that. And we're going back to the 1800s, you know, mid 1800s. So, you know, not uncommon things. So they <clears throat> moved a lot of the merchants up to two particular markets that were right where the Reading Terminal Market is now. And the Reading Railroad decided that they were going to build a new passenger terminal and a new terminal there. So they decided to evict or move all those merchants, all those small businesses, all those laborers that were selling their wares. And guess what? The laborers told the Reading uh, Railroad, no way, stick it, we ain't moving, we're staying. And they became squatters on this property. And it became such a powerful movement that they ended up building the passenger terminal above the market and enclosing the market and actually becoming the public market that we know now. So the Reading Terminal Market exists today because of the small business person saying no to the big corporation in America. I mean, isn't that what Labor Day is really all about? It's about celebrating you know, the labor force and the business people and, and everything like that. And then as a result, what you know, Reading Terminal Market became, it became the largest refrigeration space in America at the time in the basement. They had a, a liquid ammonia refrigeration system, not something we would recommend today. But back then, it was, it was huge. And, you know, the amount of produce and, and products that they could store, it was so big that they would, you know, lease out space to other companies. So Pennsylvania Hospital, one of the first hospitals in America, a big hospital in the city of Philadelphia, used to store its medicine there. And then, of course, Yingling. They had to store their hops for making beer. So they would, you know, use that to do the, you know, store their hops and then come in and train everything out. So that being said, my top 10 farmers markets in the country, shout out to all the others out there doing everything. Remember today to thank your hospitality workers, to thank your farmers, to realize those who work every day of the week so that you can eat drink and not be naked. Thank you, Gene. Happy Labor Day, everyone. Welcome our Food Farms and Chefs family. Let me introduce you to Chef Dennis Lilly, who is in a, like well-versed in the culinary world, and he is bringing you restaurant quality ingredients, restaurant recipes, and bringing them into your own home and simplifying them. Dennis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on today. I appreciate that. I'm happy to be here, Aunt Amaris. Amaris. But yes, yes, thank you for, for joining us. And I mean, you, you're you here with another one of our, our co-hosts, Chef Gene Bloom. So he is going to you know be able to, to jump in every so often. But I want to say that you you are a very busy busy individual. Um, you know, you have a blog, you have like a website, you have a YouTube channel, you uh, work with um, different restaurants, and um, even I believe you were working with Viking Cruising yeah. Cruising as well. Yeah. So you're very busy all the time. But um, I'm gonna throw it back to actually when did you get started, and you know. What, where did you study? Well, I, I started blogging 
because I began a, a culinary class at the school I was working. I only ever worked at one school my entire life. And uh, while I was there, when special events would arise, I had to hire temps and they were like the dregs of the earth. And I'm like, oh my God, this is horrible. So I would you know, try and figure out ways to get around that. And one day I'm sitting there and one of the young ladies at the school was all um, high school girls, went to this one school and she asked if she could help. And I gave her an apron and we were talking. I was showing her what to prep and things. And then I just hit me and says, oh, I'm, I'm missing a whole target right here. I've got people in this school that I could teach, you know, be a win-win, something good for the school, something good for me. I'd have a trained staff and they'd have a, a really cool club that these girls could join, a culinary class. So I started it. And as a result of that, you know, blogging was in its infancy back then. It was 2009. Uh, I'd heard about it. I'd seen it. I had no idea what it was all about. But I went to our IT person and they helped me set up a blog and it was for all my girls to go to, but none of them wanted to. They just wanted to come see me in the office. But, you know, then I'd have other students going to it and teachers going to it. And then I found a company called Food Buzz uh, later on in the early stage of 2010, and they were out of San Francisco. And it was a worldwide organization with food bloggers from all over the world. And it really pumped me up and got me excited about this. And uh motivated me and I was seeing food from all around the world. So between me starting the classes for my girls and doing this, I was like a whole revitalization of my passion for food. And, and I honest with you, at that point I was getting a little tired. I was getting a little burned out. I've been doing this for a long time. So that was good. It kind of reinvigorated me and then got me going again. So where it really didn't do anything with the school, it did promote me a lot in the world ride arena and at the same time google plus had just started uh, around that time and they, I, they were like my people i found them they were my people and uh, i was philadelphia's power user and they uh, gave me a, a pat on the back by putting me and rewarding me by putting me on the follow list along next of anthony Bertain, rachel ray martha stewart emerald lagasse and chef dennis i'm like Phew, i don't know how that happened but you know so it was really pretty cool so that really brought me into more prominence and then started making more contacts where I still wasn't making any money, but I started to get better known and, and I was learning my craft at the same time. So um, things just progressed from there. And I, you know, I left the school after eight years at the school, I graduated my first full four year students through the class and um, retired due to a series of injuries and, you know, just things that happen to chef as you get old and I moved to Florida we were in Florida, had absolutely nothing to do, but plenty of sunshine and blue skies. So I just started going full force on my blog and on social media. And I started speaking at conferences. And one day someone told me there was a hotel looking for bloggers. And I said, I'm not a travel blogger. This is how I apply. So I did. And long story short, I ended up being like their last one. I got the worst room in the place. They were renovating it from the ground up. I was on the third floor, crappy room, but... They had installed nine foot sliding glass doors that opened to the Atlantic Ocean. It was a beachfront property. So I'm looking out at the ocean and I'm just looking at it. And I'm going, I can do this. If I write about it, they'll send me places. So <laughs> I, I became what was referred to as the accidental travel blogger <clears throat> and um, later caught Vikings attention and uh, Colette Travel's attention and uh, some other cruise companies and some other companies. So I started traveling the world, writing about 
my culinary experiences, uh, what, you know, of course, a little bit of what you could see, but mostly about what you could eat and what you could drink. And, and I actually had someone call me on it one time. They read my thing. He says, he was at five UNESCO sites and never mentioned them. All he did was talk about what he ate. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I do. You know, everybody writes about those UNESCO sites. If you don't know they're there, shame on you. Okay. But, you know, where can you get authentic food? So that really, you know, had me rocking and rolling, uh, 2019, I was I was going strong like a big dog, and then the pandemic hit, and everything went to a screeching halt. Um, and uh, when that hit, it did one really good thing for me, though, because at that time I, I was too much of a travel blogger. I was worrying too much about social media, and I forgot something very important. I like to cook, because when the pandemic hit and we couldn't go out, I started ordering food online. I was getting salmon from Alaska. I was getting meats from small farms. And I, I was just like, wow, I really like to cook. What happened? When did I forget this? So that kind of re that was my second reinvigoration of my career and of me. And uh, good timing because with everybody home, guess where they were going? Food blocks. So my business really just went through the roof and uh, it's just been progressing since then. And Life is good. You know, what can I say? It's uh, good to be me some days. Now, it's wonderful to hear another teacher. I spent uh, 15 years in a classroom teaching high school students. So that passion and, and it does wear on you. I, I hear that. And, you know, what you did is so wonderful for everybody. But one of the things that I love about your site, you, you take the mystery or you know, people think that cooking is some complex, you know, 20,000-year-old language that is a secret among people. And you make it accessible to anybody. You break down recipes and techniques and, you know, what you put up is, is really for everybody who has, you know, any ability to boil water. And it's really wonderful to see somebody do that to show that, you know, cooking can be fun for everybody. Um, you know, for those of us that are extremely passionate, but those of us or those out there who, you know, don't ha necessarily have passion, but want to learn a little bit more, want to do a di better dinner for their family. Yeah. And, and that's the whole thing that I try to get across to people was, you know, so many people will find a recipe on the Internet. And because someone like me or, or someone even you know bigger than me, Emerald Lagasse, or not not to pick on Emerald, I love Emerald, but anybody like that will make their recipe and it's got something in it they don't like. They just don't. The flavors aren't their thing. But because they say they are in their recipes, they think it has to go in. So I, I've begun really telling people, you know, this is your dinner. If it's got something in it you don't like, leave it out. Put something else in. Make Let's make a swap out. And I try to give ideas for swaps in my recipes because if you spend time in the kitchen gathering the ingredients, cooking this dinner and, and making it, and it comes out great, but you don't like it because you don't like how it tastes, guess what? You're not going to be real excited about going back into the kitchen the next time and cooking again. But if you swapped out that ingredient with, you know, I always, I always use broccoli as an example, too. I have a shrimp and broccoli. Well, if you don't like broccoli, let's put in asparagus or let's put in mushrooms or let's put in spinach. Let's put what do you like to eat? Let's build something around what you like to eat, you know, using this basic recipe. I tell them, you know, it's not etched in stone. It didn't come down from the mountain. You can adjust it. That's true. And I mean, I, I don't really talk about how I started in all of this. And, you know, it was a step by step by step, uh, you know, 
you know, progression as, you know, until I got to this point where I'm actually like uh, co-hosting on, you know, a radio show, but it, it matters that you're doing step by step by step and like offering those substitution. I, I used to write recipes. Um, that's kind of how I got tethered in that before, you know, a digital magazine took notice of me. Um, but one of the things that I, I noticed um, through your YouTube channel is you even bring it down to each step um, through that too. And you have a co-host, I believe Susan is. Her yeah. Name? Yeah. Those are old, but I mean, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but like, the, you know, I didn't know starting out how to smash cock a chicken, you know, so it was interesting to, to see you explain that to her because, you know, way back when I probably would have been like, oh, that's how you do it. Yeah. But I mean, you're really taking just all the techniques and making it easier for people to follow, which I think is important. Uh, yeah, uh, that's important. And, you know, for years, I did not want to do step-by-step -step pictures for my blog, but, you know, I finally had to bite the bullet and do it, you know, because it's a lot of extra work. So I did do that. And once I got, you know, I got so many compliments about how easy it was to follow my recipes because I provide them, you know, and I stopped thinking like, I have this natural ability to do it because I've been doing it so long. I just know what goes into it. But someone who has started doesn't necessarily know something as simple as, you know, putting the butter in the pan here or doing this because it's just something I take for granted at this stage. So I, I had to go back and make it. You know, I have a friend who always says, you need to make the recipe so a six-year-old or a drunk can understand it. <laughs> I like that. That's funny. <laughs> So, I mean, and it, you really do take it to all, across all levels, too, because you obviously have, like, seafood, you have meats, you, uh, you know, have pasta dishes, um, and, you know, desserts, too, which we'll get back into desserts <laughs> later. We'll, we'll save it for later, because that's when, you know, your just desserts are. But, you know, it's, it's amazing that you are, you know, incorporating all of these things and, and making it easy to follow. So I can appreciate that. And you also have a online uh, version that, of your cookbook and recipes yes. that's free, mm -hmm. I want to add, yeah. um, to follow along that way too. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the things that you, you cover, you know, as far as recipes that are trending? Well, you know, everybody, I know uh, if, if you watched uh, the Italy show with, uh, oh my God, I can't think of his name now. <laughs> they just toured Italy making food across across the different regions. He, he made a caccia de pe pepe um, and one of the dishes. So that was something that I made so people could understand how to make it and easy. You know, I, I try, you know, things are trending and I try not to do too many trending things because people always say, how do you decide what you cook on your blog? And I go, well, I cook what I like to eat and I cook what I think my friends like to eat. And pretty much that's it. Now, I have been trying to stretch the boundaries a little too much and, and stay in that creative mindset of a chef in a restaurant where you're making specials that people are going to go, ooh, and ah about. But, you know, honestly... Number one, people aren't searching for that because they have no idea what you made, okay? And, and number two, they think it's above their pay grade to make something like that. You know, it's like, I, I can't create something or the, there's just there's sun-dried tomatoes and I don't even know what a sun-dried tomato is, you know, or something. So I went back and I said, you know, I've been working harder instead of smarter. So my philosophy this year was to take just plain dishes and I've been doing, like I did a chicken leg 
with some spices on that'll just blow you away. I just did a chicken quarter that was different. You know, I'm going to, I have like plain like broil flounder coming up. Things that, again, I take for granted as simplistic. But when you do them right, they're as good or better than your restaurant. You know, I just finished yesterday. I did a um, um, penne arrabata, and I also did a, a penne alla vodka. Now, one of the things I'm going to mention in the penne alla, alla vodka recipe is, to me, it's a waste of good vodka because <laughs> you really don't need it. It's a gimmick. You know, people, if you got cream, you got butter, and you got cheese in there, let me tell you something. Nobody's going to miss the vodka. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather have this a martini. There you go. You know, it's, you know, it's it's a waste of good vodka. And if you're not using good vodka, shame on you. You shouldn't even be using it. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, we should be like penny, penny marinara con vodka. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know in Italy they'd always have sans or or what is it, sans or something with gas or no gas. You know, it's like no sans vodka or no with vodka. <laughs> But really, you know, again, sometimes we come up with things and it's, you know, would anybody have read uh, Penne Blush with a blush sauce or, you know, uh, would they have would they have been as happy with that? But when you go, oh, Penne La Vodka, they go, oh, my God. It's like I was at a distillery and the guy says, would you like to try some white whiskey? And I went, white whiskey? Oh, my God. Yeah. He goes, well, it's moonshine. I go, oh, it sounds so much better as white whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that kind of brings it around to like, you know, the technicality of bringing people's attention because people eat um, with their eyes first. Oh, absolutely. We all know that. Yeah. And, you know, and it's a trick of like, not just the visual of it, it's also a trick of like the wording. What was that, Gene? Um, so I, it, you know, it matters whether or not like you're going to be entering it, like, um engaging somebody with the recipe when they visually see it um and read what is is um on on the on the recipe did i lose you guys i'm here um, i'm here i'm here <laughs> okay um so how how do you you know bring people through social media to your site well you know i use Twitter and you have to use Facebook. I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Pinterest, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, I do have a um, TikTok account, but I have not been very good at using it. Uh, again, it's not in my era of things and with work the way it is. And I keep telling people I'm retired, you know, and everybody keeps trying to hire me to do stuff and I'll say no, and they'll throw an exorbitant amount of money at me. So I mean, all right, I guess I'm not retired today and uh, go back to work. But it's it's a matter of reaching out to them and showing them the first and most important thing is the picture's got to be pop. It's got to look really, really good. And when you talked about eating with your eyes, you know, one of the simple, very simple things that I do with a lot of the end, a lot of my dishes, is sprinkle chopped parsley on it. Just to add a little bit of color. I mean, it's or a little bit of the seasoning too. You know, that's when I put a little more black pepper on, or maybe a drizzle of olive oil, or maybe a little crushed red pepper or cheese, just to pick it up. You want something to add some contrast and some pop to the plate. So when a person sees it, they go, Ooh, that looks good. Okay. Cause part of the initial battle with any food that you get served is the appearance. If it looks unappetizing, even if it's the best thing you're ever going to eat, it's not going to taste like the best thing you're ever going to eat because you're visually 
you know, not stimulated. My wife will laugh because I look at the plate. When something really nice comes out, I look at the plate. I smell it. I just look at it some more. I turn it around and then I eat it. Then I can fully appreciate all my senses are on overload with the dish that I'm going to consume. So I'm not asking people to do that. But, but when I have, if I really have a knockout picture, I want them, their attention drawn to that because that's what's going to go, oh, let's see how hard that is to make. And that's And that's where the jump to recipe button at the top comes because I honestly don't expect everyone to scroll through everything and read it. They're going to hit jump to recipe. They're going to go down there. They're going to say, oh, that's not difficult. I think I can make that. So they're going to go buy the ingredients. They're going to go home and then they're going to scroll through and see my step-by-step -step pictures, my little tips, or maybe a, a short two-sentence story. I, I learned not to tell stories anymore because people want to know where the recipe is, not the story. They don't care about <laughs> you, but your Sicilian grandmother walking up the mountain to pick this special basil leaf, you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think some of that matters. So, you know, because there are definitely like people that will, like, I'm one of the people that, you know, notoriously will skip, you know, yeah. down to the recipe. Um, but, you know, there are definitely people out there that are like, what's the history behind this? You know, like, Gene, he's a he's a historian, uh, a culinary historian. So he would be one that would probably read whatever the the like write up or you know what brought you to that point. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, which brings me to another point. While you were learning to become a chef, was you know, do you have anybody who influenced you? Oh. And and you know, have you brought their influences into some of your recipes? Oh, absolutely. One of the earliest influences in my life was a woman that I, I met on my travels uh, across the United States when I was young. And it's someone who it turned out that my parents knew. And, you know, if you believe in like a psychic connection, I woke up on a bench and she's standing there with a cup of coffee and she says, you're late, sonny boy. I'm like, <laughs> who are you? And I'll take the coffee. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, she became an early mentor, Mama Jeanette. And, uh, and she had known my parents when they were stationed in Louisiana. My father was stationed there and had a restaurant. And uh, she had a large major influence on my life and learning. She told me that I had to listen to food and it would tell me what it needed. It would speak to me and, you know, not verbally, but it would speak to me and I would know what to put in it. That was my one true gift in creating combinations. You know, everybody can make like a solitary item, but I would blend proteins and other dishes together other foods together not necessarily fusion of of different you know uh ethnic things but just what did it need did it need a sun-dried tomato did it need a little juice from the pepperoncini did it need a little artichoke did it need you know what did it need what to round that flavor out and i just kind of sort of instinctively be knew because i was listening to the food I wasn't listening to much else but i was listening to the food <laughs> um <laughs> So that, uh, and I had an uncanny ability to fill a pot so that it always leveled out no matter what I poured it into. It was just right. That was, that was my one true gift. But uh, she, was, they were my, she was my first real influence. And then when I went to work in a restaurant, uh, I learned from two chefs. My training was as an apprentice. I, didn't, I, I went to school. I have an associate's degree in food science, but uh, my on lines, my online, on the line, <laughs> my, my line skills and my meat cutting and ordering and all that came from actually working in a restaurant and being taught by these two chefs. One was a CIA graduate that was brilliant in every aspect of what he did, but did not like to cook. So uh, that provided me an opportunity to step in 
to cook and I got to cook a lot more than I should have early on because of that. And uh, he saw that I could do it and trusted me. And uh, that really progressed my career along. And that's important too, um, you know, because eating on, on learning like hands-on experience is a big thing, especially like you, you've probably seen it after having taught other people and I'm sure Gene can pitch in and, you know, agree with this, that like actual experience, you know, it kind of just gets it into your brain, your epicenter of like, this is how to do this. Yeah. Um, and then the fact that you were able to listen to the, the food as you were cooking it, um, and you know is is important too i know myself when i cook i don't measure things which oh, no. you know, <laughs> um, when you're creating recipes obviously you have to measure yeah. everything out so people can follow along and that is tedious and takes a longer period of time to make the recipe as a result but in the end it keeps the consistency the same sure. absolutely um which is important yeah. but you know i i'm one also that i would go <laughs> And I said this on um, other episodes, but I used to um, go to a grocery store and freak out the grocery store clerks because I would stand in the middle of the store and I would pick one thing mm -hmm. and then I would build a whole entire recipe around in my one. brain around it. Yeah. So like a, a clerk would come by and just be like, are you, are you okay, miss? <laughs> so I don't know, you know, if, if while you're actively creating these recipes, um, if you're in your head building, the recipe in a similar fashion but you know a lot of what i do uh, and i tell people when they shop for food you know a lot of cooking like a chef isn't necessarily the ability that we have is that the ingredients we get like we have source we can source different ingredients that people normally can so you have to kind of learn how to get around that and how to pick what you're going to cook with i mean i always tell people there's a lot of really good small farm meat companies out there i use one called crowd cow i don't get any money from them but i mean they're just one of the ones i use they have uh, all good selection of pork and beef and chicken from you know humanely raised uh past you know uh not pasture raised isn't is not the the key word I keep looking for, but they're there's they they get to live like animals rather than be penned up. And you know I was thinking eating crazy food is not a good thing. So I, I want my chickens out pecking at dirt and worms and bugs and uh, that kind of stuff. But you know getting that type of meat as opposed to just grocery store meat that has kind of lost some of it, something along the way. You know a lot of it has or uh, finding vegetables that are. I will say I will start at produce and that works out because I think almost all the grocery stores start you at produce these days, at least the ones I've gone to. And I'd look to see what is the freshest and what's local. Those are my first two buys. And so I'll buy the produce and as crazy as it sounds from then I'll plan my meals on what I have to work with there. And then, you know, I, like I said, I always buy my meats, they're frozen. So I'll go home and see or what seafoods I have and, um, and go from there. But I'll say, you know, what what can I what can I make that with? Is that going to be a side dish, or am I going to incorporate that into the meal? And and this once people start learning to cook like that, cooking becomes really easy because instead of just looking for things to buy to create, you're going into your refrigerator and making dinner out of what you have. Yeah, and I think that that's very important. Now, uh, there's only a couple of minutes left and, you know, you have a lot of things that you're, you know, <laughs> a part of <laughs> that you on a regular basis, you know, you know, put your hands into and, and create for your followers to uh, to follow along. 
So how can our listeners follow you? Well, the easiest way is to go to my website, and that's www.askchefdennis.com or just askchefdennis.com. And if you're on social media, look for Ask Chef Dennis. Um, I think I'm that pretty much everywhere uh, these days. I think I got all those names tied down. Uh, so just look for me there. Go to my website. There's a form you can subscribe to my website, and you'll get that free cookbook you were talking about. I just put my fall fall menu on them. I change it every uh, every season so we get a different new uh, set of, uh, of uh, dishes out. And uh, yeah, sign up and you'll get, I won't bombard you. You'll get a few welcome emails and then you'll get one a week. If you don't open it, you'll get two. But uh, you get one a week with my latest recipes or possibly something that I'm bringing back out or something that I've reworked. So you get three recipes a week. Which is very good. And, you know, hopefully one of them is desserts. Oh, yeah, um, usually. <laughs> so... I'm going to end this by just mentioning the fact that I love chocolate and peanut butter. And I saw that that was one of the, you know, desserts that you've created. Yeah. So what's one of your, you know, favorite desserts that people, you, you would say, definitely try making this one? Well, my all-time favorite dessert is tiramisu. And that's one that Mama Jeanette taught me to make and I had lost and it was back in my brain. I had to really work to pull it out. Uh, but I had it in Rome one day and all the memories came flooding back. And I went home and started working on a recipe and making it. So for the longest time, I was number one in tiramisu on Google. And then I did the cardinal sin of redoing my blog post, which dropped me to page three. <laughs> so now I'm working my way back up to page one, but you'll find like 1500 comments or 1200 comments on my tiramisu uh, uh it's takes about takes me a half an hour to probably take someone just trying it within 45 minutes to an hour to make but let me tell you something it is well worth the effort you put into it because it, it'll be better than any tiramisu you've ever had out all right well what's well worth the effort is for all of our listeners to check out your site and dennis thank you so much for joining us on food farms and chefs it was my pleasure hopefully we will have you back again oh anytime gene um, thank you very much dennis i'm going to close with one of my favorite quotes i think you will appreciate this and you understand um it is one of the great chefs we all love thomas keller who really uh speaks to what you said that a recipe has no soul. You as a cook must bring that soul to your recipe. And everything I heard today as you were talking to us and as the food you were describing was talking to us was exactly that. Absolutely. Thank you, Gene. I, I love that quote. All right. Thank you for tuning in to Food Farms and Chefs. If you would like to join us as a guest or a sponsor of the show, you can email me at you can find me across social media at arpolicus, or you can email me at arpolicus at gmail.com or foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com if you would like to be a sponsor or guest on the show. And you can find Gene Blum at ivfoodie2 across social media or email him at ivfoodie2 at yahoo.com. Mm -hmm.